All right, if you have your Bibles, let's open them up. Read a few verses from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 17. I gave this message the title, Why Prayer Doesn't Work. But it could easily be substituted with the title, which I think I've used once before in the message, Why Christianity Doesn't Work. Or you could actually say, Why the Bible Doesn't Work. And it's true. Prayer does not always work. And the Bible does not always work. And I want to explain that to you today. Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. The Bible says, And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic, is mentally ill, and sore vexed, for oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Why prayer doesn't work? Here a man comes to Jesus, as we just read, and he asks the question, well, it's in the form of a statement. My son is something wrong with him mentally, but we know here he's demon-possessed. And he said, I brought him to your followers. I brought him to Christians, and they couldn't cure him. And Jesus' response is a strong one. Now remember, he's speaking to the apostles or disciples, and he says, oh, faithless and perverse generation. That's strong words. Well, after Jesus successfully cast the devil out, the disciples want to know why they couldn't do the same thing. And Jesus just simply says, because of your unbelief. And then goes through a passage so many are familiar with. Faith as a grain of mustard seed can move a mountain, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. For me, this is a great challenge. But it is, I believe, for many Christians because, as I have told you just recently... Many of our problems come not only in sickness, but other things too. After we prayed, after we've asked for prayer, I get prayer requests just about on a daily basis, pretty much every day. And not just from the church, I mean from all over. And prayer is made, but the truth of it is there's really no expectation. Now among ourselves, we talk. Well, God is this, and I prayed that, and can you pray for me, and all of this here. But you see, God alone knows the hearts. And I'm sharing with you the truth that goes right back to Jesus' ministry right here. That deep inside the heart, if there's not real faith of an expectation that this prayer is going to be answered, this is why prayer doesn't work. For me, 
I would find no reason to pray the way we are taught in the scriptures, told in the scriptures. I'd find no reason to pray at all if I did not expect that what I'm praying for is going to happen. Now this here, casting a devil out of someone and raising the dead, is not really something that I want to delve into today because I would consider that to be, even as Jesus says here, prayer and fasting, more time and effort before God has got to go into this type of situation. So we're going to just ratchet it down a bit and just talk about ordinary things like you have a headache or overcoming sin in your life and other things that, for lack of a better term, is more manageable. So this sermon is actually a review of some of the things I've told you over the past few weeks, maybe months. Expectation belief. There is no sense to me, at least, in praying. I prayed before I knew the Lord, but I never really expected that much would happen. I just did it out of a little, let's call it a religious duty, which was sufficient at the time until I read the Bible. And I saw there was answers to prayer in Jesus' ministry, of course. Then in the book of Acts, things happen. And I realized that this was vastly different from my own experience and from the experience of many people I knew where they treated prayer as though it was just some type of tradition or, again, a religious duty or whatever you want to call it. But deep in the heart, and God alone, once again, God alone knows the heart, the trouble is with the disciples here and with you and with me. There's no real expectation that this is actually going to happen. So we just say things to God. It's the protocol. It's the way things are supposed to go. And we know the protocol. But we've got to come to know God. That with God, nothing is impossible. And so with this in mind, I'll tell you a little story. A man was out on the beach, just him and his dog, and he was throwing a piece of driftwood out into the water. Dog retrieved it, bring it back. Retrieved it, bring it back. And he was very happy with the dog's progress. This was a, a new trick the dog had learned. So another stranger came along on the beach and he says, hey, I want to show you what my dog can do. And he took that driftwood and just threw it out there a ways. And the dog went straight on top of the water and brought the driftwood back. Did it again. Throws the driftwood out. Dog runs on top of the water. Comes back. Man's amazed. The man who owned the dog said to him, he said, did you notice anything unique? He said, yeah, your dog can't swim. <laughs> now, ordinarily, the average individual is not going to notice that the dog can't swim, but the dog was running on top of the water, which is impossible except for Jesus. But I want to submit to you that that story has application for you and for me when we read the Bible. We're reading stories. We're reading things that Jesus did, and that's good. And it does a certain amount of good, palliates the mind from its anxieties and so forth. But deep in the heart, there's no real expectation that we're going to see these things. I remember a man came up. He was the head of the um, Christian organization where I was a guest speaker. He was the president. And at the end, we had altar call, as we have done here, and anoint with oil. And by the way, one of the reasons that you don't see me do a routine every single solitary week is for this very reason. So we don't get inoculated to this. We just pray and then don't really expect that anything's going to happen. That's my reasoning behind why I do what I do. Anyway, he came up, and I was asking people what they wanted me to pray for, and everyone had something different. And then this man came up, and I told you he was blind. And I'm expecting him to say, you know, I don't know, heal my marriage or something. And I will never forget when he stood before me, I said, what do you want me to pray for? And he said, that I may see. And right then and there, immediately I knew inside me I had no faith for that. Did I pray? Yes. 
Did I anoint him with oil? Yes. That's the protocol. That's what we find in the book. But I'm being honest with you today to tell you I had no faith whatsoever. It stunned me. I, I just assumed he accepted his blindness and let it go with that. But evidently he didn't accept his blindness. And I don't know whatever became of him after that because that was the only time I actually met him and spoke with him. What do you want me to pray for that I may see? And I was stunned. I I was a young preacher at the time too, but it stunned me that a man would have that kind of faith to go before God that he wanted to see. Yet we read it all the time in the Bible. And no, I'm not here to be able to explain how all this works because I don't know. I just know it's in the book and I know it's a challenge to me. But again, keeping it away from the spectacular, blind people seeing, dead people being raised up again, and well, even lepers being cured. Just want to take it down to the, maybe the lowest level possible, whatever for you that may be. To ask you the question, as I did just recently, when you pray, do you actually expect that God is going to hear you and there's going to be an answer to what you prayed for? This is the whole crux of the matter, is that we actually expect that as we go to God, God is not only hearing, we know he hears, we even know that. But many people walk away from prayer, and I guess it's buried so deep in the dark, in the dark recesses of the heart, there is no real expectation that what you're praying for is going to come to pass. On the smaller things, you know, you need a job or money. These to me are smaller things. And let me just say this as a way of helping you. Before you're faced with a blind man standing in front of you who's asking that he may be able to see, which would be a spectacular movement of God, the work of God, start with little things like your headache or your backache and work your way up. That's the way everything in life is learned. We learn it starting with the little things. That means you're practicing your faith every single day. Every day, every day, every day. And your spiritual muscles are getting stronger before you're faced with a blind man who says, I want to receive my sight. Prayer does not always work. That's evident just watching Christians' lives. The life of a church. Not everyone, I'll get to this in a minute, not everyone is obedient. And this constitutes a problem. The V8 engine that now, again, we take for granted was the concept of Henry Ford hadn't been done. No one thought of it. So he told his engineers to work on a V8 engine. They were immediately telling this is impossible. Can't be done. They worked diligently for six solid months. And after six months, the engineers came back to Henry Ford and they said, nothing. we got nothing. It can't be done. It's impossible. He said, do it anyway. Six more months they worked, a full year. Came back, they still didn't have anything. But as they applied themselves a little more and a little more, eventually someone came up with the way to build the V8 engine. See, we're used to these things. We just take it for granted. But keep in mind, both spiritually speaking and in the secular world, in just the material world, there are many, many people who have accomplished things that other people, the rest of the crew, said it's impossible. Yet here in our text, Jesus says, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. It doesn't mean everything's going to happen overnight. It just means nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now, even with that statement there, coming from the words of Jesus, if you have a red lettering Bible, the possibility exists for so many people that you've been exposed to the Bible so many, many times, like the dog who was actually running on water. The man never noticed that. All he noticed that the dog couldn't swim. We look at the same verses over and over and over again, and all of a sudden we are inoculated. We don't recognize what they're actually saying. Now, I had an experience with the Lord just this past week, but it's not been the first time over the last few months. So I'm sharing something personal with you. 
And it is to this end that I found that there's parts of the Bible I don't believe. 31,102 verses, and believe me, I've read them all. And I've read them all a lot. And then I, I would have to imagine it's a work of the Holy Spirit because I wasn't looking for anything special. I wasn't in prayer. I was just laying down, just meditating. And it occurred to me that there are parts of the Bible I simply don't believe. And how did I come to that conclusion? By the way I think and by the way I behave. And the verses that I'm thinking of, I'm not going to share with you. After all, you can't expect to know everything about me. I'm finding to be a great challenge. And you would think it's this one here. That is a great challenge. And that's not the one. Something I've read hundreds, maybe even thousands of times. And now all of a sudden, it's time to graduate. It's time to go to the next grade up. It's time to go from regular instruction to the master class. And I found out by examining myself with this thought that came in my mind that I really must not believe this because I don't practice it. And you know what? It's not one of the big things. It's one of those little things that I find that when I read it, I just pass it right by. And I say this to help you because you do the exact same thing. You read it. So many of you are biblically literate. But keep in mind that knowledge is not the same as doing something. Yes. Knowing the Bible is not the main purpose of the Bible. Knowing the Bible is simply knowing what it says that many of us here can repeat. You know, in my first few years of being born again, I had books of the Bible memorized verbatim. Now, I dropped the practice for quite a while now. But I could recite books. I did it for my pastor. And it was this book here, Matthew. I started in chapter 1. I forget when I stopped or he stopped me. I was chapter 12, chapter 13, reciting it word for word. That's all knowledge. Knowledge is not the same as doing. Jesus said, happy are ye if you do them. And then we go through this here idea of obedience. When it comes to the impossible, doing, a man that has fascinated me for years and years, and there's so many you know, wonders of the world and how did the Egyptians build the pyramids and all these theories. And they're interesting to me because they are just very intriguing intellectually. But this man, Ed Leedskallen, immigrant from Latvia, stood five feet tall, well, five feet tall maybe here. He weighed 100 pounds. 100 pounds. His diet was exclusively sardines and crackers. That's all he ate. For whatever reason, that's all he ate. But some of you might have been there. I don't know if you've been down in Florida to the place they call either Rock Castle or Coral Castle or just Ed's place. This man all by himself, and to this day, there's still all this debate about how could he possibly have done that. He built this place called the Coral Castle. Minded himself, 100 pounds, just a little over five feet tall, on a diet of sardines and crackers, self-taught as an engineer, with just a few masonry tools is what they, all they can figure out. He moved blocks of stone, which is not precisely coral, but he moved stones, made a door at Coral Castle that weighs nine tons, and you can move it with your finger. Sundial, rocking chairs, altogether the entire place weighs over 1,110 tons. In some places where he mined this type of limestone, call it coral, but it's type of limestone. In some places, it's 4,000 feet thick. 4,000 feet thick. And then there came a time when he decided to move all 1,110 tons of this place two and a half miles up the road, and he moved the whole thing. And to this day, no one really knows how this one man did all this. I mean, he made claims about knowing the secret of the pyramids and whatever, and however he did it. But for me, no matter how I look at that, I am amazed. I am absolutely astonished 
of what he did by himself. That, of course, had he, and he didn't announce to anybody what he was doing. He just simply did it. But imagine if he had announced this is what he's going to do. Imagine that everybody he met is going to say, it's impossible. You're going to need help. You're going to need this. You're going to need all the modern tools, which back in 1920 weren't too many that we have like now. I'm fascinated by this. Fascinated. But what really fascinates me about men like Ed Leedskallen is the fact that some people are so focused on what they want to see accomplished and what they want to do that in this case, at least as far as I know from the little I've read on him, actually I've read on him a bit, he never announced to anybody what he was going to do. He just did it. And to this day, they're still trying to figure out how did he do it. And he did it all at night when everyone was sleeping so no one could see him. However he did it, I don't know. Some say they have it figured out. Some say they don't. I don't know. I just know. That's a modern marvel of our country here in America. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. That should challenge every single one of you here today. Nothing shall be impossible. But the truth of it is, and I really hate to be so blunt at this point, the truth of it is a lot of you are going to pray and pray and pray and still not get answers. Or you'll still come to church and you'll still read the Bible and do devotions. But it's not devotions, it's being devoted this man here who builds this castle, well, it wasn't really a castle. Still around, by the way. Not really a castle, but he just did it. And again, what is the sense of praying if we don't really expect it's going to happen? When Jesus goes to Nazareth, the Bible records in the book of Mark, he could not do many mighty works there. And then it tells us the reason. Because of their unbelief, nothing in Jesus has changed. From the beginning of time... When we look up at God, he has not changed one single bit. Not at all. So if nothing is happening in your life concerning prayer and your Bible, don't be looking up at God and say, what's the problem? Look inside and say, what is the problem? And I'm going to tell you what the problem is right away. There is not a real expectation that things are going to change. That's the truth. We really don't believe what we read in the Bible. That's a general statement. You may want to debate with me later and say, yes, that you do, but don't bother because I'm not going to debate with you. If you do, you do. If you do, you won't have to talk about it so much. You're just going to do it like this guy. We really don't believe what we read in the Bible. Because if we did, the very first thing, we just had communion and the forgiveness of sins. If we really knew what that meant, and the, the, the seed of the word of God really, really went down into the heart, and there was true faith there. Every time we have communion, every time you think about the cross of Christ, there would be such a relief inside you. That God not only loves you, but he loved you so much that he gave his son and so on. But then, after Friday's crucifixion, we come to Sunday's resurrection, and Jesus promised that those that trust in him, when put into a grave, in the course of time, are coming back up again. In essence, overcoming the fear of death. Which we all know, everybody knows it's inevitable, it's going to happen to all of us. But if we really believed that when we go into, uh, presumably go into a coffin, and then into the ground, that Jesus, as we read in John's Gospel, said, your brother shall rise again. If we really believe that, I would submit to you that there's not a thing in this world that can bring us down, down to utter despair. To bring us to the place when David wrote, and he said, why so downcast, O my soul? But first of all, you're going to rise again. All your sins are forgiven, so you can rise again. And it's all the work of a God who has not changed one bit. But you have to say to yourself, spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking, do I live in Nazareth? 
that when I read the words of the Bible, and Jesus comes to my home, and I'm praying like we're supposed to, and many of you pray a lot, nothing's happening. And what happens is that after a number of years, we get used to that. We get used to the fact that nothing's happening. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it goes. But we continue on in our habits. If I thought for one minute that this Bible was not inspired of God, after all these years I've been preaching it, I would immediately dismiss it and look for the truth. But it is the truth. And it's not God who's in error. Let me say something here. You're informed people. We hear this being said all the time. And I accented a lot, as you know, because I believe it's necessary. And there's all these things happening in the wars and rumors of wars and famines and all these things. And one would think that this would be a time that people would be doing everything in their power to press in, to really know Jesus. Not just his words. Read Matthew chapter 7, 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says, and whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, is like a man building his house on solid ground. Whoever hears these words of mine but doesn't do them, Building a house on sand. And that's really what I'm getting at today. You could hear the words of Jesus. You could read the words of Jesus. But if you don't do them, your house is still built on sand. Even with Bible verses circulating in your brain, in your mind, and coming out of your mouth. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. If you're relying on yourself, your good works, or whatever else to be saved, nothing's going to happen. Well, nothing good. We're totally relying on Jesus Christ. Do you live in Nazareth? And I'll tell you how you can find out, as I've mentioned this before, study yourself and listen to what's coming out of your mouth or what's going through your brain. This is how I've arrived at certain conclusions that I don't, I must not believe portions of the Bible because it's not what I'm thinking and sometimes it's not what I'm saying. I don't want you to think that I just said I've turned from Christ. I haven't. I'm graduating. And as I mentioned earlier, the closer I'm getting to the light, the more flaws I see. Ones I didn't even know I had, but the light is bringing them out. And that's a good thing. Amen. It's not a good thing to be in a rut all the time and just, you know, we pray because it's protocol. We, we preach because it's protocol and all these different things. But what good does that do if nothing is happening? Jesus expects things to happen. In the book of the Revelation to the churches, he says, to him that overcomes. That's a commander in chief saying, I don't hope that you overcome. I expect you to overcome. Like generals like Patton. He says, we're not holding the ground. And I'm not paying for the same real estate twice. We're going forward. We're going to conquer the enemy. And of course, they played a big part in winning the war in Europe. Generals like Patton and others. They weren't expected just to hold the ground, hold the fort. He said, well, I'm not holding the fort. We're not holding the ground. Let the enemy hold the ground. We're taking the ground. That's when you advance. That's how you know that you're growing, because you're going forward. I want you to think about this today. Am I going to church meetings and it's business as usual, even though I know what verses to say, the end times, famines, but what's your behavior like? Where's your focus? Are you finding that you're becoming more focused? And here's the thing, even to the point that those around you who are not believing, you have to start to even go like this, because otherwise they're going to take you away too. And I can't have that. I cannot be amongst the five foolish virgins who let the oil go out for whatever reason they let it go out. I got to be with the five wise virgins who kept trimming the wick, making sure there was oil in the lamb and kept it burning. Let me give you this verse here as a type of example. In the book of Titus, in chapter 1, at verse 16, the apostle Paul was explaining the difference between a believer in Christ and an unbeliever. And some who say, well, I know God. He answered and said, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. 
being abominable and disobedient and to every good work reprobate. A good work means you're doing what Jesus said to do. Remember the sins of omission? We need to talk about that more and more. Well, I don't commit adultery and I don't cheat. And there's all the things you don't do. What are you doing? What are you doing for Christ? I think that part of the success of the early church was the fact that things were actually happening. Lives were being changed. And of course, in the book of Acts, miracles were occurring. And I am fully convinced that God has not changed one single bit. So I'm bringing you back to Nazareth. Nazareth, as you know, was Jesus' hometown. Everyone there knew him. They knew Joseph, Mary, his brothers, his sisters. But when he arrived, it says he could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick folk, which would be an ultimate revival in most churches. He could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. You don't want to be found there. You don't want to be found professing to know God, but in deeds, works, thoughts, speech, denying him. And with the hour getting closer, as we talk about so frequently, and many do mention it as well, there should be all the more time to be focused on these things. This is a true story. It happened back in 2001, 22 years ago. A husband and wife went to get their taxes done at H&R Block. And at the time, H&R Block was running some type of publicity thing where they were giving away $1 million to a random person or persons. So Gail and Glenn Sim had went over, this is in New Jersey, to have their taxes done at one of the local towns there. They had their taxes done. Their name went into the box of how many tens of thousands of people that were all in the box to win a million dollars, and their name was picked. They received a phone call at the house. This is so-and-so from H&R Block, and you are the winner of our $1 million. But like many of us, we said, yeah, sure, and just they hung up. Person went to their boss, said they hung up. Call them back. Call them back again. And they're expecting that it's just a scam, which I think, once again, that would be reasonable. Just a scam. Anyway, as time went on, it got down to almost the very last hour before they were going to go on to the Today Show, H&R Block, and announce the winner. But they would have announced that this is the winner, a married couple, Gloria and Glenn Sim. But they're not taking the money until finally it occurred to them. And it was on the radio as well. Somebody has won a million dollars is refusing it. Then they realized this wasn't a scam, and they received $1 million. That was 22 years ago. They had 20 years of receiving, I think it was $50,000 a week. So now it's run out. But if we knew the power that's actually in this book, we would treat it more delicately in the way we handle the pages. That's just an opinion. We would treat it more astutely in our focus because we know that we are the winners in this gospel. We read, we are more than conquerors. We had that just a week or two back. More than conquerors. You win a million dollars like they did just because they had their taxes done at a certain place and that happened to be the place they picked the winner. It was pretty much random, but we don't ever expect that we're going to be the people. I mean, I've never gambled. I've never even bought a single lottery ticket in my whole life. A lot of reasons, a lot of good reasons, but at the end of it all, I don't expect to win, <laughs> and neither should you. But if I really knew, for some reason, that the winning ticket was at the local place where I get my gas, and I actually knew, somehow, just knew that this was the winning ticket, I believe I'd buy that one. I'll deal with forgiveness from you people later on. How frustrated must God be, and we see this here in Jesus' life, when he's saying, you're the winner, and we're hanging up on him. 
And going through motions, talking to, here's a husband and wife now, I'm making this up. Here's the husband and wife talking about how we're going to pay this bill, that bill, this bill. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And H&R Block's calling them constantly saying, you've won a million dollars. We want to give it to you. Oh, yeah, sure. Now, you may disagree with this, but I wish that you would think it through before you fully disagree with me. When I say, once again, this is how you read the Bible. God is saying, I'm going to give this to you. I'm giving you eternal life. I'm giving it to you. And it meets with sales resistance. We think it's a scam. Maybe we were brought up to say, well, you got to do a lot of good things. I don't know. Whatever people believe. God is saying, here's it freely. Here's eternal life freely. Here's salvation freely. Heaven, I'm going to raise you from the dead. And we can take it from there. I've often told you that when I look around my own home, I'm just amazed at all the things I have received from God that I didn't even ask for. Because God is good. God is good. And so I didn't have to pray for every single little thing. They just came. Some things were prayed for and some things weren't. But in essence, when opening the Bible, it said, you are the winner of eternal life. Now, I believe this. The areas I'm talking about being challenged in is not in this area. Saved from the wrath to come. Is there really a wrath to come? Or will man figure it out and stop it just before it's about to happen? The book says no. I believe the book. Your prayer life will yield no results until your faith, real faith, goes down deep in the heart. And when you believe it, you will know you believe it. And again, I'm not talking about the exalted things we read in this book or hear from some preachers. I'm not talking about the truly miraculous things. Once again, I suggest you start with something simple like a headache or how to do your taxes. Or something simple like, I'm going broke. Well, if you violate God's principles, you might just well go broke. And you're going to be in the church. You're going to be maybe not asking me or somebody else, uh, pray for me, pray for me. What's the sense of praying for you? You're violating God's rules. Nothing's going to happen. I've actually told this to people. I had a man come to me once a few years back. Just found out. I just found out. He stopped by my house. Just found out he got lung cancer. And he was crying. And during the course of the conversation, he asked me to pray for him. So I always ask people, and this is the reason I ask people, I say, what do you want me to pray for? You think that was obvious? No, there was a reason I asked him. Well, he wanted to be healed. But again, in my spirit, opposite the story I told you about the blind man, in my spirit, I knew that he didn't have faith. So I promised him I would pray, and I did. But this is how I prayed when I went home and prayed for him until he passed away. I said, Lord, I don't know, and I don't sense that there's real faith here. I think it's just a flare. Like that loose hope I've talked to you about. Hope this works. That is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is grabbing onto Jesus' garments so tight that Jesus could hardly move forward. You got him so tight that you're not letting go. I'm not letting go until you bless me. That was Jacob, right? Jacob said, no, you're not going anywhere. Let go of me. No, and they wrestled all night long. It wasn't one of these easy things, you know, a couple of seconds, and then I can go on and watch TV and do my thing. It took time. It takes time to know God. It takes effort to know God. And Jacob wrestled with that angel all night long. The angel kept saying, let go. And we know it was a test, but he wouldn't let go until he blessed him. And finally he says, well, what is your name? He said, my name is Jacob. He said, you're no longer named Jacob. You're Israel. You have wrestled with God and prevailed. Wrestle with God. Well, that's another subject. In any case, until you have faith that goes down deep into the heart and the roots are there, and then you will know when you have it. You won't have to ask, do you think I have faith? You won't need to ask anybody, do you think I'm saved? 
Because when you're saved, you know it. How do I know it? Because it's in the book. The spirit of him that raised up Christ from the dead dwells in us and he imparts to us a knowledge that we know that we know that we're saved. You just know it. That's when prayer is answered. And that's what you want. You're going to go to prayer. We have prayer meetings all throughout the week. But there is no sense. Might as well shut them all down, every single one of them. I mean it. Might as well shut them all down if nothing's happening. Because there's something wrong. There's something just something wrong. But when we see answers then we know we're in accord with this word. There is no sense in going to the one true God, the almighty God, in unbelief. That's when prayer does not work. So it don't matter what you say, and you may be very fluent and eloquent, and I've heard those type of prayers, sometimes in public, sometimes in private, and, you know, speak the way you want. I don't use many big words, vocabulary words, when I preach, try to keep it simple, but I use them at other places, at my discretion. But I'm not trying to impress people with my vocabulary. This is the words that I use. You don't have to make a great impression on God with your words. But what does impress him is when Jesus says, I have not found this great of faith. No, not amongst the people of God, Israel at that time. Number one, we don't believe what we really read in the Bible. Number two, this seed, turn with me to Matthew 13. This seed must fall on good ground. That means you have got to till the soil. Those of you who were raised on farms, those of you who have your own gardens and you're pretty good at it, I know, because I've seen the produce, you know what to do, but do you know what to do with your own heart? You gotta till that soil, the soil of your heart, until there aren't any clods, until it's fertile, until the heart is receptive to this word. Someone wrote in one of my son's Bible, a teacher, a Bible that he gave him years ago, in the presentation it says, this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. In Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower and the seed. And for the sake of time, I won't read through it all. But at verse 3, it says, He spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside. The fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell on stony places where they had not much earth. And forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And so then the question is asked, why do you speak in riddles and in parables? And the answer is very startling. Jesus said, because it's not given for them to understand the word of God. And who were they? They were the experts in the word of God. Beware of experts, especially when you're on social media. I've heard people make outrageous claims. One guy, I kind of studied them. I've heard him make all kinds of claims that I know loosely is just baloney. Nobody's an expert in that many places. But the people buy into it because of his ability to act. I mean, he's actually a pretty good actor. He's not an actor, professional, just can act. He can convince you. But they don't convince me, because I know better. The seed of the word of God, when you read it or when you hear it today, has got to fall into ground that's prepared. And that ground has got to be prepared by obedience to God. That obedience has got to be very solid and unmovable, as we're instructed in the book. Sometimes we read quotes that have a lot of good meaning, and I want to give you one. And I have given this to you already. But I'd like to give it to you in its exact form from the Stoic philosopher, 
slash Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. He said, think of the life you have lived until now as over and as a dead man. See what's left as a bonus and live it according. Now he says to nature. This is the philosophy of Stoicism. But what I'm going to interpolate here and put in Bible. Think of your life, how you've lived it up to this point, And now it's over. And you're going to live out the rest of your life the way it should have been, according to the book. Love the hand that fate deals you and play it as your own for what could be more fitting. We talk about this, that, and the other thing has happened to us and all that. And here, these philosophers, in particular Marcus Aurelius, says, play the hand you've been dealt. That's what he's saying. But I like this as a follow-up. Waste no more time arguing what a good man should be. Be one. That's pretty succinct. Argue no more about what is a man of faith, a woman of faith, a woman of God, a man of God. Be it. Be it. That's the message of this book. The word of God has got to fall on good ground. Otherwise, nothing is going to happen. And that is, I want to say it again, that is the problem we have today. We really don't expect that anything is going to happen. You look to elders, and I hope it's not me, but I'm just saying in general, you look to elders who don't have any more faith than the new convert. As a matter of fact, many times the new convert has more faith than 50 years of eldership. Degrees, and Bible degrees, and pontification, and the ability to be a good orator. And it's disarming because you say, what could I understand? But remember, the common people heard Jesus gladly. They were simple people, fishermen and so on. But they took his word to heart. And then after a while, they got the attention of the religious leadership. And they said, wait a second, we know these men. They're not from Harvard. They're not Yale men. They're not from Stanford. And they're not from Oxford and Cambridge. We know that these men are unlearned. How are they doing these works? Because the faith was there. The faith was there in God. And the faith was there in Jesus Christ. So we have to understand that prayer does not always work. If there is not faith, real faith behind it. An expectation belief. That's a good way, I think, of thinking of it. Expectation belief. If I was, again, talk to you one-on-one and say, do you believe this, that? We've been together, many of us, a long time. You're going to say, yeah, I believe. But do you really expect that God's going to really show up? God's going to... You see, you know, let me just read this to you. Let me just read this to you. William Grinnell, in talking about the early Christian church, the one we read in the Bible, he said this, Their message was not only strange and new, but contrary to a man's corrupt nature, as it is still today. This book is opposite of how we would do things and think of things. It contained, their message, it contained nothing to please the sinner's lust. Christianity is easily, listen to this, this is the part that I found engaging. Christianity is easily embraced if it is presented in a whore's dress. Now those are his words, not mine. Christianity is easily embraced if it is presented in a whore's dress, with its purity adulterated. But the doctrine of Christianity in its own native excellency lays the axe to the root of every sin and defies all who participate in wickedness. Now, that's about holiness, but the same thing in the general subject of faith. It lays the axe to our unbelief. It shows us that we don't believe. And I would submit to you that the greatest example of a prayer not receiving answers, because behind it there's not really any faith, is that most prayer meetings don't get answers. 
And most people who pray don't get answers. But that's not the way God designed it. And it's not what God wants. And you don't have to beg him today. Oh, please answer me. I mean, sometimes we're desperate and we may do that. I know that I have. I remember one time being so desperate and in such a dark place many years ago. I went for a walk in the pouring rain. I was so despondent. And the only thing I could get out of my mouth was this one word. Help. God, please help. And sure enough, in the process of time, the rain stopped physical rain, and the moral rain, and the spiritual rain, and the sun began to shine, and everything just worked out, because that's God. And we have to get to that place that we don't accept the Bible the way we would any con artist or prostitute. You want it in its purity. That's when things happen. And that's only when things happen. It is natural for us to think the way natural men think. I have limitations. Hear me out. I have limitations. God has limitations. Now, you're not going to think of that consciously, but unconsciously. When the doctor gives you the long face, and I'm not saying you shouldn't trust your doctor, you should. Whatever doctor you see, you should trust him or her. But for me, when a doctor gives me the long face about this or that, my thoughts immediately go to God. Well, I think that he's saying all that he knows, or she, but my God. My God is able to deliver me, and I'm expecting God to deliver me. And if I may say it this way, politely, reverently, I will be disappointed if God doesn't come through. I know that when I enter heaven, at least this is how I, I imagine heaven is, I know that when the, I'm in heaven, as the song says, it'll be cares all past, home at last, ever to rejoice. I don't know, but I'm thinking that I won't need answers to prayer in heaven. That's the way I imagine it. I need answers to prayer now. And God is not sitting there with folded arms and saying, well, beg me. Come on, beg me. He's saying, trust me. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And that's the key to answered prayer. It's a complete trust, which, believe me, it's very difficult for some people to accomplish because to trust God is not an easy thing. Don't ever think that it is. Trusting God makes you sweat. And God has a way of testing, so we don't have time to talk about that. But God has a way of testing. So, in other words, look it. This is how we're sometimes taught. This is how we think. An angel comes, I touch him, I say, bless me. He says, okay. And then I go about my business. But God, when he deals with his own people, 40 years, they only had one day supply of food just for the day. There was nothing in the refrigerator. They had manna in the morning, lasted one day. Friday, two days. Sabbath. And don't work on Sabbath, he says. That was it for 40 years. Their shoes didn't get old. The garments were good. And they were fed all that time. God tested them because the book says he wanted to see if they would walk in his word or not, his law, which they didn't. So God says, that's it. You're not going into the promised land. Your children are. You see, you want your prayer life to be fruitful. You want to be just about jumping up and down in your seat, frothing at the mouth for me to give you an opportunity to testify of the great answers you're getting to prayer. But believe me, after all these decades in ministry, that's not the norm in almost every church. And I'm Xing out all the con artists that make all these extravagant claims, many of which are simply not true, so they can pretend like they're here and make people think that they're here in the New Testament, and they're not. But there are extraordinary answers to prayer for the average Christian, which is you and it's me, if we really believe. And he says, and doubt not in your heart, and James writes, and don't waver. Stay there. Then we get answers to prayer. Then when we come to a church meeting, we're excited to go. 
Instead of a little thing like the weather, well, I guess I'll stay home. See, the reason that people stay home is because they're not expecting much to happen anyway. That's the truth. I remember a Catholic priest, when I was a kid, making a statement that I will never forget. I think it was in the second grade. He said, if I was up here giving away diamonds for free, he said, this place would be full. I'll never forget that. I was, how old are you? Seven years old? It struck me and stayed with me. If people really knew we were giving away valuable diamond rings or like H&R Block, a million dollars, they'd be here. You know, not counting sicknesses and vacations and times away. But the truth of it is, the reason that the religions of the world are taken over in America is because people actually believe that they work and this does not. But this is just sophistry and intellectual gymnastics. And it's just the opposite. Just the opposite. Dwight L. Moody was one of the great evangelists of the 19th century, the 1800s. And he preached one night in Chicago, gave a salvation message, and then told the people, you go home and you think about this. And you come back, a day or so later it was, you come back, and then we'll see if you make it. This was Finney's method, by the way. Maybe he was copying Finney, I don't know. You go home and think about it. But that night, the great Chicago fire occurred. And many of the people in that meeting died in that fire. They never had an opportunity. Moody went on to say he would give his right hand if he could do that all over again because of the regret he had not giving people the opportunity to receive Christ right there. For me, I'm somewhere between Finney and Moody because what I always fear is that if you say something again and again and again and again and nothing's happening, it's hardening the heart. There is an expectation that nothing's going to happen. So if every week we're just laying hands, laying hands, laying hands, it's the same to me as a shotgun. I mean, it's just a bunch of BBs, basically. And you're going to make a hit. But it's a whole lot different when you're shooting a pistol when you've got one bullet, especially if it's at a distance. We want to make sure that the Word of God is falling into your hearts to make a deep impression. It's going to radically change the way you think, and especially when you read the Word free. Free. If you don't believe that you're saved freely, you're going to have a lot of worries for a lot of time. If you don't believe you're going to be raised from the dead, you're going to have a constant nagging fear of death, especially if a sentence of death is given to you by a medical professional. If you don't have a belief that Jesus heals the sick, when you get a diagnosis, it's going to vex you. So we need to have the book deep in the heart. And like Jacob, catch this and keep this. You're going to wrestle. Not much, even with God, comes easy. When I hold, heat up my oatmeal in the morning, two minutes, 30 seconds. One, two, three, go. Easy. If I had to go get the oats myself and do all that, not so easy. God is not our servant. We are his servant. And he tests us to see if we'll walk in his word or not. And when we do, the blessing becomes ours. And again, the hands are starting to go up because they got testimonies. Emails are going out. God is answering prayer. For those of you who understand what I'm trying to say, I'm hoping that you leave here dissatisfied and challenged the way I am between me and my Lord. It's just between me and him. And quite frankly, some of the things he's dropping in my heart is just frightening. Not because it's so big. It's not really even big. It's not a big thing. Just that my heart, just like yours, is resistant to change. And I realize I'm reading some verses over and over again, and it's like, you really don't believe these? Passed right over it 100 times, 200 times. I know you're no different than me. You're just probably not acutely aware of verses you're reading and you're just going right past it because you really don't expect anything to happen. Let's be dissatisfied with our own lack of faith, our own unbelief, and get the book deep in our hearts, in our minds, 
so that we actually really believe what we profess that we believe. Father, we bless you today. I have asked you to help us all, starting with me, to make us to be dissatisfied with our prayer lives when we don't have the answers that you promised that we would get. We're not looking at you. We know there's no flaw in you. We know that there's no error in you, no weakness in you. Fault is in us. Help us not to go along with this, the status quo, just going with the flow, just business as usual. Help us, God, to elevate our faith in this age. Someone needs to ride the church. People should be jumping up and down to pick them up and bring them. Take away the complacency that's in Christians' lives and give us back the expectation that not only can you do great things, but you want to do great things. Help us, as we read in the Psalms, to have the joy of the Lord restored to our lives. Help us, God, to be able to sing with conviction, not just singing notes on the staff, singing from the heart, praying from the heart, expecting that you're going to answer, and looking to you constantly. Father, we bless you and praise you today. Give us that sense of godly dissatisfaction, that we can press in and see you work in this age. And most of all, I think today, God, to give your people the assurance that they're safe, saved. Because beyond that, I don't know what else could be greater. Saved. You chose us. You didn't wait for us to call on you, as the song says. You sang. You called us. Called us on the phone, so to speak, and you said, hey, you want a million dollars, eternal life. It's all yours. Just come pick it up. And we responded. Just pour out your spirit, Father. Give us the revival many are praying for around the nation, even around the world, praying for America. Give us the revival that we need. Wake people up. Wake up their souls. Wake them up, O oh God. We give you all the praise. Give you all the glory. Give you all the honor. Everything that we need to reach our city, and of course some of you come from different cities, but since we're planted here, everything that we need to reach this city is sitting right here right now. We don't need any special personalities to come along. If they do, that's great. But that means God just added to us something that he saw that we needed. Anyway, everything that we need to do the works of God is right here, right now. So it's just us to say, here, my Lord, send me. And don't try to work in my gift. And I'm not going to work in yours. You work in your own gift. And we all work in our own gifts. And it will, it will be great. It will be great. It's Christmas season. People are curious. I get in discussions about the Lord nearly every day. Why? Because I'm a pastor, many people don't even know I'm a pastor. You just bring it up because the times we're living in or something the president said or whatever. And it's a way to just take it and bring it back here. But most of all, let's pray that we love God with all the heart. That's the kind of the crux of the message today. We love him with all the heart. And then we love each other. So, Father, we end our service the way we have for many, many years. Remind us to love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. It causes God to love one another. And in this way, we can assure ourselves we are your disciples. Give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor today in Jesus' name. Can you say amen today? Amen.